Our second lesson today comes from 1 Corinthians, chapter 13, verses 8 through 13. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. But then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love remain. These three, and the greatest of these, is love. The word of God for the people of God. Our sermon series for this month is Encountering Christ Through the Generations. We've heard from our children on Children's Sabbath. We've celebrated our youth on Confirmation Sunday. And today, as the calendar moves us in a logical direction, we celebrate Eastertide in the voices of our elders. I'll be honest that I've approached this theme and this Sunday with extra care. I can't say that I identify as an elder, and anytime you have a person speaking on behalf of a group they don't identify with, you have to be careful. As a woman in my mid-30s, I've barely come to terms with the fact that I'm not even a young adult anymore. I am just a full-grown adult adult. And while it's fairly easy for me not to get hung up on my age and what that means for my position and role in life, I'm keenly aware that not all of us are in that headspace. When we start thinking about some of our community members as elders or seniors, we walk a very fine line. What even defines a senior? Is it experience? Is it a number on our driver's license? Is it someone in a post-retirement season of life? Who gets to decide? Who qualifies as a senior? Kroger says it's anybody over the age of 55, but good luck finding a store that still offers their senior discount. The US government agencies have differing ideas of what age defines a senior citizen, ranging from age 60 for SNAP to age 79 at the DMV. Now, I understand that there is a need to define who qualifies as a senior because we have agencies that specialize in serving and providing for our older population, and they are vital and important. And age may be the easiest way to quantify and normalize that definition. However, no one wants to be defined based solely on their age. I think about my new friend Bob that I met last week. Bob is the owner of the White Horse in Black Mountain, North Carolina, he is in his late 70s, maybe early 80s, and he works a full week pouring drinks and hosting a variety of musicians and artists at his listening room. His work is constant and it is meaningful in the community at a time in his life where most people would expect him to retire. I think of my old friend, Father Kelly, a Catholic priest who was best of friends with my grandmother. 
And at his 80th birthday party, a long night of good times and flowing beverages, Father Kelly told my uncle, who is a skydiver, that he wanted to go with him to the drop zone the next day and try it out. He could have been kidding, but my uncle didn't assume that, and he showed up and they went. And Father Kelly went skydiving for the first time at the age of 80. Age doesn't define what we can or can't do, but these stories aren't always the norm. The reality is, aging takes a toll on our bodies and minds. Caring for our family members who are aging is an immense challenge. But how many of the challenges we associate with aging are based in reality versus our biases? We get hung up on age. It affects how we view and treat ourselves and others, and usually not in a good way. Ageism, as defined by the World Health Organization, refers to stereotypes, discrimination, and prejudice based on age. That is, how we think, how we feel, and how we act towards others and ourselves based on age. Ageism affects everyone. Children as young as four years old start to become aware of their culture's age stereotypes. The WHO points out that ageism is everywhere, from our institutions, to our relationships, to ourselves. Ageism is in policies that support healthcare rationing by age, practices that limit some, uh, someone's opportunity to contribute in the workplace. Patronizing behavior used in interactions with older and younger people, and in self-limiting behavior, when we internalize stereotypes about what we can or can't do because of how old we are. And while ageism is something that permeates and influences everything and everyone in our culture, it obviously has particularly significant implications for those that find themselves with more years of life under their belt. Companies are often reluctant to hire applicants over a certain age because of assumptions of their ability level. Professionals with decades of experience are fired or forced into early retirement because they make too much money and are deemed replaceable for a younger, cheaper employee. We see it even in churches seeking to hire a young pastor solely so that other young families will want to join the church. These prejudices contribute to the fear of aging, and it's no wonder. We fear aging, and we fear not being heard and seen. We fear dissolving into a cloud of irrelevancy. We fear these things because they happen. Where is the justice in that? Why do we so often define ourselves and others by a number or by our physical ability? Why does it seem more often than not that our community members, as our community members gain wisdom and experience, they start being pushed to the sidelines? I would argue that our mainstream ways of thinking, especially around how we think about aging, are in need of significant adjustments. But as we seek to make meaning of life in all its seasons, sometimes we just feel like throwing up our hands. In our quest for wisdom, sometimes we find that our efforts seem insignificant. 
and the author of Ecclesiastes would agree. This Old Testament book of wisdom has been controversial since ancient times. It questions divine justice and challenges conventional ideas of theodicy. Most books in the Old Testament perpetuate the idea that when you don't follow God's rules, you get punished. If you do follow God's rules, you get rewarded. And the author of Ecclesiastes isn't buying it. If God is just, why do bad things happen to good people? If wisdom is to be celebrated, why do fools end up on top? If the only constant in life is death, what's the point? I think what I respect most about the book of Ecclesiastes is that it challenges us to break down common ways of thinking. For example, we think of time as linear. We think of life as a journey from birth to death. We categorize things in chronological order. Verse 11 of chapter 3 says, God has put a sense of past and future into our minds. Yet we cannot figure out what God has done from beginning to end. And that's the problem. Linear thinking doesn't check out. The problem with linear thinking is that everything is a means to an end, and in this case, that end is death. And if death is the end, what's the point in everything else? If the wise and foolish all meet the same end, why seek wisdom? Why try? The author muses over and over in the book, everything is vanity. Every effort of humans is in vain. Now, if the book stopped there, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have been included in our biblical canon. The author does question the meaning of life, but they also offer an alternative to traditional thinking. Instead of thinking about life as a linear journey from birth to death, instead of the seasons being one cycle of spring to summer to fall to winter, what if all of life's seasons were a constant cycle? a timeline that isn't linear, a cycle where our experiences intersect with others' experiences at just the right point so that we are able to see and recognize one another. Chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes is a familiar one to many of us. Pete Seeger's song, Turn, 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 takes all but one of its lines from the chapter. To everything there is a season, at a time for every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to reap what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. The author of Ecclesiastes uses these pairings of opposites to convey a totality and variety of life, to convey the value of complexities that sometimes we miss. I think about the verse that says, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. If we think of that in a linear view, the plucking up of what is planted is at the end, and that seems like a failure, an ultimate end. But if we're thinking cyclically, Plucking up what is planted provides the opportunity for something new to grow again, 
the cycle starts over. Metaphorically, I think about a young person putting down roots and establishing a life that they imagine will last forever. But then things change. Maybe over the years they find themselves trapped, maybe in an unhealthy relationship or an unhealthy lifestyle or a way of living that is devoid of joy. Plucking up what has been planted could seem like the end, like a failure, but it isn't. It is the beginning of a new cycle. The actions of planting and plucking up can seem good or bad in themselves, but when we think about it, time and circumstance can invert the value of any one of the actions that we find in our scripture passage. Seeking and losing, breaking down and building up, mourning and dancing. God's time is not linear. Verse 15 says, that which is already has been. That which is to be already is. If God's time is not linear, we should be spending more time recognizing and appreciating life seasons as we navigate this journey as a community together. If time and life is cyclical, there still has to be a constant, though. There has to be something at the center that keeps us fixed and grounded. What has God done from the beginning to the end? What is our constant? The good news of the Old Testament is that we have the New Testament. And through everything he did and taught, Christ showed us that the only constant is love. Paul reminds us of this in his letter to the Corinthians and reminds us that we only know in part what we think is right or wise will change. Nothing is constant except love. Love never ends. What has God done from the beginning to the end? God has loved us and desired to be in relationship with us. God was with us in the garden. God was with us when we couldn't handle paradise and had to venture out into the scary, unknown world. God has been with us and provided for us when we mess up. When we forget what God has done, God shows up again and again. Love never ends. God showed up in the most intimate way as Jesus, here on earth and as one of us, as human. And even then, when we rejected him and crucified him and buried him, God said, death is not the end. Love never ends. When death is not the end, when our journey continues with God, when love ultimately wins, God allows us to see face to face, face to face with God and face to face with others. It is a hope of what's to come and a reality that we have in front of us. We are fully known by God. It is a gift, and it is also a calling. Through every season of life, we are called to see and know others. That is because at our core, every person wants to be seen and known. As a society, I think we have done a poor job of seeing and knowing our elders. 
Even if we identify as a senior, there's always somebody older than us. And it's not going to be easy to dismantle and disrupt the ageist prejudices that we carry. But here's what we can do. First, we can dissent. We have to be willing to question commonly held beliefs and values. When it comes to ageism, we have to remember that the seasons of life are cyclical and never-ending. That means we can give ourselves permission to live authentically with others, no matter their age, because being older or younger actually has nothing to do with your season of life. And we can support and love each other because we have shared seasons. When we laugh, we laugh with those who have laughed before and will laugh again. When we mourn, there are those we can turn to that know what it is like to mourn. We can dance, we can play, and we can enjoy life knowing that we are not defined by our age or societal standards. We are defined by God's standards. And living into that hard truth and ridiculous grace is radical. Once we dissent, we turn to love. We challenge predominant ways of thinking, and then we shift to thoughts and actions that are rooted in love. Love is what grounds us. Now, I know on some level that sounds like a cliche, but how often would acts of love stand in stark contrast to our typical patterns of behavior, especially those that are so subtle we don't even know that we're doing them? Love moves us out of our comfort zones. Love means we stop avoiding eye contact with people we pass and actually pay attention when someone answers how they're doing. Love inspires us to ask questions and to seek out the stories of others. I spoke with a group earlier this week about aging, and they mentioned on several different occasions that something great about getting older is that they have more time and more ability to recognize Christ in others. What a gift. And what a lesson we can learn as a whole community about truly seeing and knowing and loving one another. Love helps us see others and to be gracious with ourselves. God's radical love reminds us that we are already fully seen and known. And at the end of the day, isn't that what we all want? Isn't the fundamental human desire to be seen and known? We've been given a gift, and it is ours to share with others. May it be so.